Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Oh, that's great. Normally no one says anything, so I appreciate that. Um, so my name is Eric, and I'm a pastor in training here at City Church. If I had not had the chance to meet you yet, I would love to. This is my first time doing this with people upstairs. This is great. I have to, like, walk around and look around. It feels very parliamentary. Um, okay, sorry. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, just, or you just need a refresher or, or something, we are a few weeks through our study into the book of Matthew. Um, so we're taking some time to work through the entire book, and like Ken talked about at the beginning, it's a long book, so we're going to do it in some uh, installments, basically. Um, so we're a few weeks in, and uh, if you've been paying close attention enough, you will notice that the passage that we are covering today does not necessarily follow chronologically with where we were last week and where we're going to be next week. Um, so this morning, I'm going to skip over verses 1 through 10 and do verses 11 through 16, and then Kent's going to come back next week and do verses 1 through 10. Um, and if you're wondering, why would you do something like that? Uh, there is no reason other than it just worked better with our schedules. Um, yeah. So there's no, there's no real great reason. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty good reason, though. Schedules are important. Um, so, like I said, we're a few weeks in, and so we've gone through an introduction to the book of Matthew. Uh, as a whole, we talked about John the Baptist, uh, we talked about who Jesus is, and uh, who he is as a king, and what his kingdom looks like, um, and then last week, Ken helped us get really practical uh, about what the, the ministry of the kingdom is. Um, so today, we're going to be talking through a portion of what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which, in all honesty, I think is just an attempt to make Jesus teaching some people on that hill sound fancier, but it's okay. That's not the point today. Uh, Before we get to that, I want to start things off with a question. Uh, So it's not my question, so I can't take full credit, but I am the one asking it today, so I can take some credit. Um, There's a a book written by a guy named Larry Hurtado. Uh, He's a PhD and expert in early church history, um, and he wrote a book titled, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And uh, short book titles are hard sometimes, so... Uh, that's what he went with. But the question he asks is a very, uh, a very helpful one, right? It's a very valid question. In, in the first, second, and third century AD, there was little to no cultural benefit uh, to being a follower of Jesus. You didn't have a cultural advantage. Um, being a Christian brought you guaranteed persecution from the world around you and about a 50-50 shot of being killed for what you believed. But at the same time, Christianity grew exponentially during this time. Uh, So that begs the question of why, right? Um, In part, Hurtado's book says that it's because of the teachings of Jesus, and uh, specifically those that are highlighted in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Um, So it's hard to be exactly sure, but what we think much of the early church did during this time period when they met together was they would read through and teach through um, different excerpts of the Sermon on the Mount. 
which as a cool side note, uh, we're going to be doing as a church very similar to what the early church would have done back then, some of the earliest Christians. So that's pretty cool. Um, but really what this is, this, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of Jesus' manifesto of sorts. A manifesto for who exactly he has called his people or the church to be. It's organized by topics, so he covers everything from uh, morality to sexuality to money to anxiety, a ton of other stuff. So it's, it's really broad, um, but also specific at the same time in each of those areas. So Matthew's purpose in organizing all of these things together is so that we can get a, uh, a much more detailed picture of the type of people group Jesus wants us to become as his followers. And also, it's, it seems like a good idea uh, that if teaching through this passage helped the early church discover who they were called to be, um, it might be a good idea for us to dive into some of the same things, right? Because apparently on some level it worked, since you and I are currently sitting in a church gathering 2,000 years later. So they were doing something right. Um, so today's passage is part of that intro, uh, or part of the intro for the Sermon on the Mount. So those of you who are readers, you will know how important it is to read the introduction of a book, right? Uh, an introduction is where the author unpacks what they're, what they're setting out to do, right? It, in the introduction, they, they, they give you a setting and, and they help you understand the broader view of what they're going to do, and then they dive in. So today, Jesus is going to be unpacking his big idea, or his, his thesis of this whole thing. And then the rest of the sermon will just be him uh, drilling down into, into really specific topics that we just talked about and getting really practical. But today, uh, we're just going to cover part of that intro. Um, so I don't think I told you this, but if you would go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, it would have been helpful a minute ago. I'll give you a second. Um, We're going to start in verse 11 today. So Matthew 5, verse 11 says, Blessed are you uh, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so if you know anything about Matthew 5, uh, on the surface, it might sound like these two verses belong in the previous chunk of verses 1 through 10, um, the passage that we're going to cover next week, the one with all the blesseds, like blessed are all these different kinds of people. Um, but I think what's actually happening here is, is Jesus um, is pivoting, so to speak, from, from talking about the crowds that he is teaching to talking about his disciples uh, more individually. Um, so he, he just listed out all kinds of different people. And all kinds, of, all kinds of different people who are blessed. That's what all those verses are. And, and now he turns and he starts speaking directly about his disciples. And he says, blessed are you when you experience persecution because your reward is great in heaven. Now you might still wonder, so what, is, what does that have to do with us being salt and light? Uh, which is what he gets into next. And so here, here's what I think it has to do with it. Um, when you and I are persecuted or uh, mistreated or excluded or misunderstood as followers of Jesus, or, or even when we anticipate being persecuted because of being a follower of Jesus, uh, we have a, a couple different knee-jerk reactions, I think. Uh, we have a, a few different, as Christians, we have a few different uh, coping mechanisms that we tend to run to uh, when we think about that experience. And what Jesus is about to do is he's going to point out Uh, both of those two main responses, and he's going to show us how they are actually inconsistent with what he has called followers of Jesus to be. Um, So in the verses that follow, Jesus is going to give us two metaphors 
for uh, who we are called to be, and then he's going to show us how our gut reactions to persecution prevent us from being those things much of the time. So let's keep reading in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's our first metaphor, right? Our first word picture for who we're called to be. It's salt. Um, So with the information that we know about salt in that day, he might be referring to one of many different uses of salt. Uh, He might be talking about salt as a flavoring. A lot of what we use it for today, right? You put it on everything, makes everything taste better. It's great. Um, It enhances the flavors of what you've got. Um, He might be talking about salt as a means of preservation, right? That was incredibly important before the invention of the refrigerator because food could go bad really quickly, so you could use salt, and it would help slow the growth of bacteria that would help the food keep longer. Uh, He could be even talking about salt as a fertilizer. They used it for for something along those lines back then. And salt salt was used for all of those things and many more things. Um, So we don't know exactly which use he had in mind, but regardless of what specific use it was, um, it didn't matter. Whatever it was, it had to be different from the thing that it was surrounded by. Salt had to be different than its surroundings. So for salt to add flavor, it can't taste exactly like the thing that you're putting on, right? That would be be pointless. It it wouldn't have any effect. For salt to preserve, it can't have the same uh, bacterial properties as the food you're trying to preserve. It it wouldn't work. Uh, For salt to fertilize, it has to be different and have different properties than, than the thing that it's fertilizing. So for salt to do what it needs to do, it has to be different. And and, and that, that's the point that Jesus is making here about his people. For the community of Jesus to be what it needs to be in the world, it has to be different than the world around it. Um, so there are going to be times that, uh, where we don't do things like everyone else in the world as followers of Jesus, right? And there's, there's going to be times where, where we're called to do things that nobody else will. And so, for example, uh, believing that sex belongs in the context of marriage rather than believing it belongs any, anywhere, with anyone, anytime, like, that's different than a lot of our culture. Uh, believing that our money is meant to be used for generosity and for, for serving others rather than being exclusively about how much stuff we can have or how much stuff we can accum- accumulate, that's, that's different than the world around us. Uh, believing that our, that our resources and our homes are, are meant to be a means to develop relationships and to, to serve other people sacrificially, not just meant to be something that's primarily for ourselves, that's different, right? We're, we're called to be different. Um, so recently, there's a, a guy in my life group, um, he's been coming around for a while, but he just recently brought up some of his thoughts when he first started coming around life group. Um, he'd been involved in church and small groups and, and stuff before, um, but he just told us after his first night, he went home and he talked to his wife, and he was like, hey, this is super weird. Like, these people are, like, actual friends. Like, this is just odd. Like, they talk about deep stuff, and, and like, they're actually friends during the week, not just when they show up. And for him, it was something different. It was something that he hadn't seen before in that context, Right? It, was, it was different than our culture to see a group of people from, from many different walks of life, many different demographics and age groups. It was, it was different to see them have deep, meaningful relationships when really the only thing we had in common was Jesus. But Jesus does also say that there is a way that salt can go bad. 
So look back at verse 13. It says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus says there is one way for salt to become ineffective, and that's for it to lose its taste. Um, And the word taste there isn't actually the best translation necessarily. It it actually just means uh, its power or its potency. So Jesus says that if salt loses the very thing that makes it salty, if it loses the thing that makes it different, it can no longer do its job. Right? So that's, that's the first error that the church sometimes makes. We'll call that losing your saltiness. Losing your saltiness. And just to clarify, I am not talking about being salty in the way that a lot of people talk about it today, uh, where you're just like low-key mad all the time and petty with everybody. Like that, not that kind of salty. If that's you, you should definitely lose that saltiness. That's, uh, that's, that's not... What we, what we mean. What I mean by losing your saltiness is casting aside anything and everything that makes you different because of your faith in Jesus. With losing your saltiness, what, what sometimes happens is that in an effort to make uh, Christianity more attractive or more uh, appealing to people, we adjust our lifestyle to look uh, more and more like everybody else around us. Uh, we start handling our money just like everybody else. We, uh, we start parenting our kids just like everybody else. We, we practice our sexuality just like everybody else. And before long, we, we really lose any amount of distinctiveness at all, any distinctiveness from the world around us. And at some point, we make it seem like to be a follower of Jesus is just really doing, uh, doing everything in your life exactly the same as everyone else. You just attend a church gathering once a week. Which, to be really honest, is a really weird hobby to just show up. Like, if that's all you're doing, that's a, that's a weird hobby to have. The, the church has just become a slightly sterilized version of the world around it, if that is what happens. And, and to, to that, people on the outside correctly say, no, no thanks. Why would I, why would I want that? Doesn't, that doesn't seem good at all. Which is exactly how Jesus said it would work. Right? The salt becomes no longer good for anything. If we look exactly like the rest of the world, we, we add nothing of value to the world. And a lot of the time we think we're making Christianity more appealing by doing some of these things, but in reality we're, we're actually just removing any reason anyone would want to be a part of it. Removing any reason that someone would be drawn to it. So, let's be totally honest for a second. There are things that we believe as followers of Jesus that are not so easy to swallow, right? If you really think about it, we believe that a guy was born to a virgin mother, performed miracles, was murdered, came back from the dead, and tells us that if we'll admit we're sinners, he'll raise us from the dead too, if we deny ourselves. Can we just admit real quick there's easier things to get on board with, right? But there are things like this and plenty of others that are difficult for people on the outside to agree with or to like, but we really like to be liked. Um, So at times what the church has done has gone, well, I'll tell you what, maybe Jesus didn't really mean that thing about denying yourself and carrying your cross. And, you know, there's a lot of different translations about what he said there. We're not even sure what the word denying meant back then in the Greek. Maybe that just means like Jesus is like really rooting for you. And he just wants you to be happy and comfortable. He thinks you're awesome. Just do everything, everything that makes you happy. And we, and we start to tweak and, and adjust what Jesus said 
just to try to make it a little more palatable, maybe make it a little more mainstream. And before you know it, we, we've, got, we've got an entire different creation that we call Christianity, but actually doesn't even closely resemble what Jesus was talking about. So I, I feel this a lot of the time, and I, for me it was extra obvious in the past couple of weeks on, on some scale. So I recently started working here at City Church, uh, which means I just finished up at my previous job. And when you leave a job, you have to tell people that you're leaving. It's part of what leaving does. Uh, so when I was telling my coworkers and people that I interacted with at work that I was leaving, um, I was, you know, I was happy to tell them I had new adventures, I was moving on to something, but I also had this subtle thought in the back of my head of like, maybe they won't ask where I'm going. Because, I mean, I, I was excited about it, right? I, I, it was the strangest feeling because I'm so excited to be able to, to be here and be doing this, but I still had this, this weird sense in the back of my head that as soon as they asked and as soon as they knew that I was going to be working at a church, that the conversation was just going to get real awkward or really uncomfortable. Right? As soon as I told them that was happening, I was like, ah, they're going to think so differently about me now. And it, and it wasn't a huge deal. I didn't not tell them. I didn't lie about where I was going, anything like that. But it was definitely revealing for me about my tendency towards trying to avoid awkwardness as a result of following Jesus. And, you know, as soon as someone hears that I, that I work at a church, all sorts of assumptions and opinions could start flooding into people's minds. And instead of letting that happen, I, I would much rather them just still see me the same way that they always have. Uh, so here's a question for everybody. If you took away church on Sundays and you took away life group attendance during the week, would your life look any different from somebody who doesn't follow Jesus? Something to think about. If you took away church gatherings on Sundays and life group during the week, would your life look any different than the people who are around you? Uh, so the average person you work with or go to class with, maybe who doesn't have any idea what you do with your Sunday mornings, or they don't have any idea what you do you know, after work, outside of whatever hobbies they know you have, would they be able to think back on their interactions and their relationship with you and go, yeah, there's something, di- there's something different about that person. Something distinct about them, even if they wouldn't be able to, to fully articulate what it was. Would, would they say something, you know, there's something refreshingly different about you. And that's what, it, that's what it's meant to be for us to be salt as followers of Jesus. Uh, but Jesus says that the irony is that the more you try to fit in and be accepted by the culture around you, the more you actually lose the distinctiveness that you're supposed to have in the world. So by, by trying to be more desirable, you actually lose the thing that is meant to be most desirable about you, that you're different. But let's keep going because that's not the only error the church makes that, that Jesus talks about. In fact, we often swing the pendulum hard the other direction as well. So let's look at verse 14. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, so... In the first century and many centuries after that, before light bulbs were invented, um, or if you've ever been somewhere, uh, maybe in a really rural area in the mountains or somewhere out in the Midwest where there's not a lot of big cities or they're they're few and far between, um, you knew or you know that you're close to a city because that's where all the lights were, right? Back in the first century and and a little bit after that, not, not lights like we have now, but candles, 
and torches and all of those things. It was pitch black other than that, and you could see that from miles away. In fact, I was reading uh, the other day that the light from a single candle, one candle, uh, if there's nothing in the way, can be seen from 30 miles away. So in the first century, if you were traveling on foot, it would be an absolutely pitch dark except for those cities, and you could see them from miles and miles away. So, so when Jesus says we, as his people, are a city set on a hill, I mean, it should be something that, that people that people see and go, they must be followers of Jesus, right? They should see that distinctiveness and, and go, the, the, the distinctiveness we just talked about, and they should say, that, that's different, right? There's something different. It's different than its surroundings. They should, they should see how we think about marriage differently. They should think of, see how we think about relationships differently, how we think about food and how we think about alcohol different than the world around us. And they should be drawn to that like a, like a weary traveler drawn to a well-lit city, but Jesus also says that there is a way that light can render itself useless too. And so look at verse 15. He says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by this? You could sing the, this, little, this little Light of Mine song, maybe. Give some illustrations. Now, I think he's getting at another error that we sometimes make in our relationship to the world around us. And so we're going to call this one hiding your light. Hiding your light. So, what sometimes happens, uh, often in response to the other error of jumping in and looking exactly like the world around us and exactly like your surrounding society, is that you'll hear Christians say stuff like, as Christians, we're called to be set apart and holy, and we can't just go on looking like the rest of the world. We've got to be different. And Obviously, I agree with that idea, right? That's straight out of Scripture. But I disagree with how that often gets applied. Uh, because a lot of times what, what they actually mean when they say that is, hey, let's just round up the wagons, let's keep to ourselves, and just close off everything from the big, big bad world so that it doesn't affect us. Right? They think the world is so seductive and so powerful and worldly, what we really need to do is just to get away from the world entirely so that we can be different by ourselves. So Jesus compares this to hiding a lamp underneath something so you don't see any of the light. Uh, and a light that doesn't put off light is incredibly useless. It's not a light anymore, right? It no longer functions as it was meant to function. I mean, there are plenty of obvious examples of this uh, where certain, certain sects or certain groups of Christianity have completely separated from the world, right? T completely forbidding uh, technology and cars and anything that could possibly lead towards worldliness. Uh, but there are lesser examples of this too that are not so obvious. Um, we do this a lot as Christians when we live our daily lives all within the confines of Christendom, Right? We go to Christian coffee shops and only watch Christian movies and read Christian books. And, and we go to the Christian mechanic and the Christian dentist. And, and we do this, too, when we only ever hang out with other followers of Jesus. When we form this, uh, this Christian bubble, as we call it sometimes. Uh, we do this when our churches become cliques that are difficult for other people to belong to or other people to, to enter into. Uh, we do this when we don't show hospitality by welcoming other people in and, and going to them with the good news of the gospel. Uh, I mean, we, we do this all the time. So uh, for college students, it would be incredibly easy to look at campus at large 
and, and just look at all the, all the darkness that is prevalent and just find a small group of Christians, right, uh, and, just, and just live in that bubble, interact. Don't interact with anyone that's not a Christian that you haven't found on campus, right? Be comfortable, make Christian friends, call it a day, right? We also see this when, uh, when people think the primary purpose of parenting is to protect children from the big bad world, right? And I get that. There are plenty of things that are scary and dangerous and just plain messed up that would be much easier to just keep away. Uh, we could surround our kids with, with Christian friends and Christian activities and keep them busy doing Christian things uh, because we don't want them making mistakes or being influenced by the world around us. And please do not mishear me. I am not saying that protecting kids is a bad thing. That is a great desire. Please do that. Uh, but I think we have got to be careful Anytime we make a habit of um, taking ourselves out of the world altogether, because we're actually called to be a light to the world. And yes, the world can be a dark place, and there's no doubt about that, but that's because it needs some light. So, so what's the alternative to this? If, if we have got to make sure that we're different, and we have to make sure that we are not separating from the world in order to be different, how do we walk that line? How do, we, how do we steer clear of both of these common errors that a lot of people make? And this is exactly what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, instead of taking yourself out of the world, do quite the opposite. Right? Let others get a glimpse of how you live your life as distinct and different so that they can come to know the reason behind it, so that they can come to know the God that makes that all possible. I mean, there are so many beautiful and practical implications of this. Uh, let's say that you're hanging out with some classmates or you're hanging out with some coworkers, and someone starts talking about somebody who's not there in a negative light, right? So they start gossiping about this person, and, and someone in the group asks you what you think. So there's a few options here. Uh, one option is you just hop right in, right? Start gossiping just like everybody else. So that would be salt losing its saltiness in this situation. Uh, or you could just decide to never hang out with that group of non-believers ever again because you're worried that if you do, you might get some of that sin on you, right? Gross. Uh, no, that's putting your light under a basket. Uh, instead, you could continue hanging out with them, and you can quietly resist the urge to gossip with them, and you can subtly model for them a more honoring way to talk about other people. Right? That's letting your light shine. Uh, it could look like uh, sitting with a group of coworkers talking around and everyone's talking about their 401k and their stock portfolios because they're just pumping all of their money into those things, right? They're just trying to, to see how much they can get. And they ask you. Uh, you could respond with some of the same things, right? You could use all of your finances as a mean of personal comfort and leisure. That would be salt losing its saltiness. Or you could just avoid it entirely, like in the previous example, just don't even talk to them. I, th I think that would be putting your light under a basket. Or you could tell them uh, that you give sacrificially to the, to the local church and to other people and to organizations because you believe that your money is a tool to be used for good and not a personal resource to amass and lavish yourself with. 
Like there's, there's so many incredibly, and, uh, incredibly beautiful and powerful things that can happen in our world when we give financially and sacrificially to help create change. Right, here's another one. Let's say you're a follower of Jesus, uh, but you have quite a few friends who aren't followers of Jesus, and uh, they regularly go out drinking just for the sole purpose of just getting drunk. Right, you could, you could just go out drinking with them just to get drunk because you want them to like you and you want them to accept you. It's salt losing its saltiness. Uh, or you could go, you know what, never going to associate with any of them ever again because that's sin and I'm uncomfortable being around sin. Again, that's hiding your light under a basket. Uh, or you could decide to continue spending time with them, either in settings where the goal isn't to get drunk, if that's a problem for you or a struggle for you in those settings, uh, or even in those settings, if, if that's not a struggle for you, in hopes that they might see you, uh, see in you a more healthy relationship with alcohol and social gatherings. Right? That's letting your light shine. Um, it could be a, a situation where you look at our society as a whole uh, and you see large groups of people being systematically and institutionally repressed and harmed. Salt losing its saltiness here, I think, could be actively perpetuating those institutions and those societal structures because some of the things that are in place disproportionately benefit you as an individual. And because of that, you're okay with letting those disparities continue or even grow. I think putting your light under a basket uh, could look more like seeing everything that's happening in our world and thinking, you know, I don't, I don't really think it's as bad as people are saying it is, right? I, I'm not actively hurting anybody. Or maybe thinking, you know, jumping into that conversation, it seems pretty uncomfortable, pretty difficult. I think, I think I'll just stay silent. Um, or you could look at the immense damage and hurt that is caused to so many people, and you could do something more like what Jesus would do, and you can actively speak out against injustice. You can mourn with people who mourn. And you can take active steps to push back against the deeply painful inequities and inequalities we have created as a society. Right, historically, um, followers of Jesus have done this in many ways. Uh, even if sometimes it gets drowned out by plenty of examples to the contrary. Uh, in the early days of the church, for example, the, the Roman Empire was known for having places uh, where people could take unwanted babies and just leave them out to die from what they called exposure. Like These were known locations. And into that broken reality uh, came, came the church, came followers of Jesus, and they, they spoke out about exposure. And they made it clear that it wasn't an acceptable way to treat children. But, but they didn't just speak out against it. Right? Christians would go to those locations. They would go there and they would take the unwanted babies home with them to be their own. Right? Adoption agencies didn't exist back then. It was just the church. They preserved that part of society. And there, there are other stories of the early church caring, uh, caring for the poor. Right? And in fact, at one point, uh, Emperor Julian of Rome was attempting to get rid of Christianity and Christians completely from the empire. Uh, but he started realizing that, that he, he couldn't do it because of how well Christians cared for the poor and for outcasts. Uh, he said, I can't get rid of Christians because if I did, there would be riots. Christians take care of their own poor and they take care of everyone else's poor too. Uh, historically, followers of Jesus have shined during epidemics and pandemics. 
by caring for the sick and giving dignity to the dead and going into areas of sickness to care for people instead of fleeing like everyone else. Uh, Historically, followers of Jesus have been on the front lines of fighting for justice along racial lines. Historically, the church has led the charge in fighting against all types of modern-day slavery, including sex trafficking. Like, there are incredible stories over the years of the church doing exactly what Jesus teaches, bringing light into darkness. Um, if you pay any attention at all to anything that is happening in our world right now, you will see how this concept of being salt and light is arguably more pertinent now than at any other time in our lifetimes. And, and the purpose of going out of our way to look different than the world around us isn't just to pat ourselves on the back for being good Christians, right? That's not the goal. We don't just talk about being different as if we're trying to make others feel bad for not being like us. We do it because it, it shows the beauty and, and the transformative work of the cross, right? We, we have the opportunity to live our lives as a billboard for the gospel, and we, and we can show people the, the love and the grace that we have been shown. It's, it is not about being perfect. It is not about living a perfect life. It's about living a life that displays the amazing transformation that God has brought about through his grace in sending Jesus on our behalf to live the perfect life we could not. I will say, if you've been coming around our church for a while and and you're involved in life groups and serving others, being on mission, all of those things, I will say, in general, you guys do an awesome job of this. I I can't tell you how many stories we have heard of of relationships people are building with with others in Knoxville that sound just like our people being salt and light, and that's awesome. So hear me say, if that's you, I want to encourage you to continue doing that and continue growing in that. Actively participate. Continue to grow. So I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way uh, in general, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are, you are part of God's one and only plan to fix what's broken in our world. Right? The church being salt and being light is the method God has put on this earth for his kingdom becoming a reality here. The church is God's plan A, right? There is no plan B. So with that in mind, uh, I think we should take a, a, a long look at our lives. Um, could you say, with all sincerity, that you have a pattern of being salt and being light? Right? Could you say, with all sincerity, that your life looks noticeably different than other people in your circle of friends, in your classes, in your workplace? Uh, Could you say that you are allowing your light to shine before others? I'm not asking if you're perfect at it. I'm not saying, do you never mess up? Uh, But I am saying, is there a consistent effort in your life uh, for living differently and letting that light shine before others in the hope that they might see it and eventually glorify God because of it? And if not... Um, what might need to change, right? If your standard of living and your lifestyle looks exactly the same as someone who isn't a follower of Jesus but makes the same amount of money as you do, what needs to change? Uh, If your weekend activities look exactly the same as everyone else in your graduating class, 
what might need to change. Uh, If the way you spend all of your time outside of work looks exactly the same as all of your coworkers, what might need to change? Right? What, What aspects of your life could be distinctly different and beautiful when looked at next to your peers? What, what ways do you need to allow Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to shape your heart and shape your desires to be more like him? Um, so I want to end with this. Uh, with, with all things, Jesus embodied this. Jesus was different, right? He didn't allow the world to conform him to their image. He didn't take cues from the world around him about how to live, Uh, But he also didn't think that he had to withdraw from the world in order to do that. In fact, he saw that as his responsibility, as the original light of the world, to let his light shine to the world around him. And listen, I am not saying any of this uh, to make you look at your life in shame. What I want to leave everyone with is um, the the beautiful picture that this really is. As followers of Jesus, we are allowed to participate in what Jesus is doing. Like I said before, we as the church are God's plan to change the world, to bring light into darkness, to show the beauty of his kingdom as it continues to grow despite the darkness that we see. Through Jesus' work on the cross, we, as his followers, get to rally together to bring that kingdom to bear on earth, right? To, To begin to see things here in Knoxville as it is in heaven. And that that's what we want to work towards as a family. So let's pray together to that end. God, um, First, we, we want to thank you um, that you give us the, the opportunity um, to be a part of your plan to change the world. Um, thank you for, for sending your son to, to live the perfect life that we could never live, um, to die the death we deserved and, and raise from the dead, defeating the grave, um, to, to make a way for us to be in your family again, and so that we can, can be a part of being your hands and feet in, in this world that is still plagued by darkness, um, that we have the opportunity to be salt and light to the earth, to make, to make you known, to make your name known, to make the work you did on the cross known. Um, I, I pray that we can, can rally together and spur each other on in, in doing that in our communities and in, in living lives that are distinctly different from the world around us but not living them in isolation from the world around us. That we would be able to live together on mission in the world around us, loving people and loving you and showing people what it looks like to live a life uh, out of the transformation that only comes from you. And, and I pray that we can remember um, the joy that is, that is in that truth, that is in your promise that you are bringing your kingdom here.
in, in the midst of, of when it feels like the only thing we can see and the only thing we can focus on is the, is the darkness and the brokenness that we can see. Um, I pray that we can find hope in your promises because um, you, you are a God who can be trusted and you have promised uh, that you are making things new. And um, I pray that we can rejoice in being a part of making things new. Um, yeah, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.